When we think of collecting and gathering research, we often think of calculated numbers that demand strict answers. But to Sonia Arellano, she believes that this is a limiting way of seeing research. Inspired by examining needlework as a form of rhetoric in feminist research, she applied her inspiration to research and bring light to migrant deaths. Although she never thought she'd begin to quilt later in life, she completed her PhD in rhetoric and composition at the University of Arizona by assembling a quilt for the Migrant Quilt Project. It is a nonprofit organization that gathers clothing left behind by migrants in the Tuscan sector of the desert and uses them to create a quilt memorializing each person who died crossing the desert that year. This work is important to her as she believes some deaths are emphasized by the media more than others, stating, people's value in death reflects their value in life. Her passion and education has allowed her to create a tactile memorialization of data that brings a unique and new understanding to quilting as a method of research. She begins the conversation of what led her to her research along with her interviewers, Ellen and Allie. I always like to tell this story and say that um, it begins at the end. So my uh, stepmother passed away while I was in graduate school, um, in the middle of graduate school. And uh, it was very quick and um, pretty traumatic. So that really sent me down this path of thinking very deeply about death and grief. And so uh, my story kind of starts with that, this very traumatic thing that happened during um, during graduate school. And so when thinking through, uh, at, at simultaneously at the same time, I was living in Tucson, Arizona, and I was volunteering with a lot of um, migrant initiatives in the community. Um, and so going down this, this path of thinking through death and grief, um, I was also trying to decide on a um, dissertation topic while also, um, you know, volunteering in the community. And that kind of uh, led me to think, like, I, I want to want to do something about my migrants, something about migration. Um, I also come from a family of migrant farm workers. So my master's thesis was also about the migrant farm worker narrative. So I've always been interested in the plight of migrants, um, interested in migration. And then again, at this, um, you know, this death made me think a lot about death and grief. And my uh, dissertation director one day uh, brought the migrant quilt project to me and she said, an article about them and said, oh, you should look into this. This is really interesting. And at first I thought she was crazy. I was like, why would I want to work with quilts? Like, I'm, that's not what I'm interested in. Um, and then I read the article and looked at their website and was just blown away, taken aback, um, very emotional experience. Um, and, and then I, I contacted the, the um, quilt project and it, it kind of led me down that path. So it was a very, um, and then I also realized I had a, I have a familial background also in, in sewing and um, the pieces just kind of fell together. And I love telling this story to students and new researchers because I, I always tell them I do weird stuff. Like my, my research is weird. And here's how it all kind of came together. These like very weird intersecting ideas um, and, it, and it worked. And so I think that I was very lucky to, to go down this path. Well, it's very fascinating. Today we are here to talk about quilting as a qualitative feminist research method, expanding understandings of migrant death. And one of the big claims of this paper is that quilting can be used as a method of research that 
and that qual qualitative methods are just as important and valid as quantitative ones. This research method required more than just craft knowledge. You had to learn how to quote, but you also learned about the North American Free Trade Act and its effects on labor, both in the U.S. and in Mexico. Can you tell us about the interplay between this traditional scholarly research and the arts-based method of quilting? How do these two seemingly very different research methods come together in one project? Again, I, I love talking about this, right, about how they are very different um, approaches and how they work together um, very effectively. So it's interesting because I learned my, like I said, I, I've learned to sew from my mother who was self-taught. Um, and so she taught me how to sew just in general. Usually we would sew clothes. Um, and then after I started this project and got asked to do the quilt, um, I got a grant and was able to take a quilting class. So this juxtaposition was really interesting because my mom, being self-taught, is constantly saying, oh, if you mess up, just seam rip it, or you just kind of like squish this together and finagle this here. I don't know a lot of um, terminology of sewing. I have to use a lot of YouTube videos because I just, I'm, I learned from a self-taught person and she taught me in that way. Um, and then the quilt class was taught by, you know, like a proper class and, and it was um, very technical. And it reminded me a lot of the graduate courses I was in at the time. And having been in graduate school for so long and successful in that, I was so used to this very, um, you know, like a higher ed way of learning. And so to be simultaneously taught by my mom in this very different way, um, it's, it's just a, a unique thing to bring together. Um, when I'm sewing other projects, I constantly am thinking about my mom and her saying like, oh, if you mess up, just like no big deal. Um, whereas, you know, I don't feel that way in the other work that I do. So, you know, thinking about being trained as a rhetorician um, or as a rhetorical theorist um, by a, you know, a large university, a large research university, and then like taught to sew by my mom and to bring these two ways of research together, um, it's really interesting. It, it's difficult at times because, um, for example, learning a lot about um, issues of, of immigration, um, that has come in a more traditional way, but also in, a, in an experience-based way, working with um, migrants in Tucson. So what would op often happen is, uh, for example, working with the migrants in Tucson, I would, um, something would happen that I wouldn't understand throughout the process. And then I would go back with my normal traditional research self and look up the policy or look up, um, you know, research that has been done about it to better understand the immigration process. And so even things such as NAFTA, um, again, I, I wrote a master's thesis about the migrant farm worker narrative. And to understand how farm workers were affected by NAFTA, you know, I had to read a lot about that. And so, yeah, the two, bringing the two methods together or the two approaches is interesting because I find that they're both very messy. Um, you know, when I'm doing research, I have books everywhere or articles all over my desktop. Um, and when I'm sewing, I have materials spread everywhere, right? Everything starts with a basic idea in your head of, of how you're going to outline something or what you want the final product to look like. But the process um, is very messy with both.
Yeah, so you mentioned in the paper that making the quilt began as a side project, but it ultimately evolved into something greater. You also noticed, noted that quilting can address the gaps in our knowledge that numbers do not address. How do you think the quilt addresses these gaps in our knowledge, and did, you, did making the quilt evoke any emotional experiences? No one in their right mind would take on a quilt as a side project while writing a dissertation and teaching, right? It was insane to think of that, but I didn't know that because I had never made a quilt before. Um, so, you know, the, the idea of it being a side project was, was really quite silly because it is so much work. So considering that, I didn't really understand either. It wasn't until after the fact that I understood the amount of, emotional and intellectual labor that went into making this. And that's what made me then come back around and be like, you know what, this is exactly what this was. This was a method. This was um, a method. And so for me, the gaps that it filled, I had to, you know, go back and think about it in hindsight. Um, I think one gap that it fills is, is thinking about proxi geographical proximity. Um, I think that I might have mentioned this in that article that I was astounded that students at the University of Arizona were living, going to school 60 miles from the Mexican border, and they just knew nothing about our interactions with Mexico. They knew nothing about immigration through the Sonoran Desert, and I just I couldn't, there were many things I read that I knew. Um, bodies were found, you know, inside Tucson city limits in the desert along the side of the highway. And I couldn't believe that an entire population was living here, young people were living here, and just had no idea. And so to me, that one of the gaps it fills is thinking about proximity to this, this really atrocious phenomenon. Um, the other one was, um, I don't know how to say this, but like how we are implicit in these deaths. Um, and I would arguably say through apathy. Um, and, and even if not, even just being a U.S. citizen, um, because a lot of the arguments I make are that the state is responsible for these things. The state knows this happens. The state intends for these things to happen. Um, our immigration policy is set up with prevention through deterrence, which, you know, they've stated. They, if people die, well, that's just part of it. Um, and so thinking about the complicitness of American citizens um, I think it's part of one of the gaps that I'm, I tried to fill with this is for people to think about, like, why is this happening? Um, and what part do I take in this or not take by just simply not even knowing? As the quilt project has traveled around the United States, um, states that are not close to the border, a lot of people in those states had no idea. They just had no idea that migrants were dying out in the desert. Um, and I think the average person doesn't really know the process or extent to which this happens. And then I think lastly, one of the gaps it fills is about necroviolence, what Jason DeLeon calls necroviolence. And that's violence that's enacted after death, right? Like these migrants, they don't get funerals. They don't get, you know, a lot of times their bodies aren't even found intact. And so really the numbers are not accurate. This is a phenomena that cannot be counted because um, Jason DeLeon has a book called Land of Open Graves. He talks about basically how then we'll never know the numbers because bodies um, disappear, right, for various reasons, the weather, animals, so on and so forth. And so how could a quantitative study 
ever really relay what's happening in the desert. It can't. And I'm not saying that this necessarily does either, but it gives us an idea of what does that mean that it can't. And so for me, that necroviolence, that violence that happens to these people, to their families who are not able to grieve them in the whatever ways they want to, um, that is another gap to me that, that this fills. So uh, unlike traditional research, which focuses on the products, your qualitative method is also concerned with the process, especially because this quilt grew in importance throughout your research. I'm curious, how did your understanding of the topic of border migration change over the course of your project? What emotional evolution did you experience as the quilt gained greater importance in your research? Initially, my argument was that it was the rhetorical work that these, this quilt project does, right? How it, uh, the ways in which it uses, you know, rhetorical devices to um, convey something to it, its audience. And what I found in looking through responses from, from various viewers, right, or from various showings of the quilt project was that the quilt project didn't change people's mind about immigration. People were either already like, yes, these are humans, we should care about them, this is so tragic, which they already thought before they saw the quilts, or people were like, well, they shouldn't be crossing illegally, so if they die, that's just what happens. And there was, there was never really that in-between of, of seeing the rhetorical work that it was doing. Um, and so my argument at, at the end of my dissertation was that they, they're promoting empathy, right, or that they're getting people to be empathetic. And, but by the time I finished it, I thought, no, I don't, I don't know if I believe in that. And actually, I think I was highly influenced by hearing a talk by Jason DeLeon. Um, there aren't a lot of people who do work about migrant deaths. So um, I draw a lot from his work, even though he's in anthropology. Um, and he talked about this idea at, uh, at a talk about if you're an adult and you haven't learned empathy, I don't know that a quilt or my work is going to teach you that, right? Um, and so I think that is what I learned through this process about immigration and about the rhetoric of immigration that I'm, I'm not going to convince anyone who doesn't already think migrants are humans. So I think my shift moved from thinking about um, empathy, right, and promoting empathy to agitation. Yeah, so in making the quilt, some of the choices that you made were very meaningful, like including a blood-stained square of denim or embroidering X's on the square to tell the migrant story. So can you tell us what other meaningful choices, like is the color or the backing central to the narrative that your quilt tells? So one, one example of like the colors at the very top, uh, where it says Tucson sector, behind that it looks like it's just like varied colors. It didn't turn out exactly how I anticipated, but um, the intention behind that was, have either of y'all ever been to um, Arizona or the Southwest? I went once when I was pretty young. So the, um, the sunsets in Arizona, or at least in Tucson, are just breathtaking. They are beautiful. I miss them so much. And then on the backdrop of the mountains, they are just gorgeous. So um, I intended to use the strips in the background to um, imitate kind of an abstract Tucson sunset. I mean, um, they're just beautiful. And so the, that, along with the next thing I'll explain, um, I intended to show just the beauty of the nature there. I think um, 
often when we talk about, when we tell narratives, they can often seem one-sided. So like the narrative of migrant deaths is awful, right? The desert is so dangerous and it's hot and they die from that. Um, but the desert's really beautiful. It's really beautiful and it's humans who really cause it to be a dangerous place for migrants. And so I think often that is, um, that is lost, right? We, we, some of the times the beauty of something is overtaken by a narrative of violence. And so I wanted to portray that really beautiful Tucson sunset or sky in Arizona um, with those colors. And, um, and additionally on the back, that, um, that fabric has a like spiny kind of pointy looking um, green plant. And although this isn't exactly what that is, it really resembles um, an ocotillo plant, uh, which is native to that area in Tucson. And ocotillo are potential, ocotillo are basically my favorite, one of my favorite plants in the, de in the Arizona desert. Um, because uh, normally throughout the year, they look like a spiny tree. They don't have any leaves. It's just like a bunch of pointy spines coming off of one really tall branch in the middle. Um, so when I tell people that's my favorite plant, they're like, what? They're pretty ugly. But in the spring, they bloom and they have like little typical looking little bright green leaves and then these beautiful like uh, coral colored little flowers on them. So the, during the spring, they are just gorgeous and it is such a juxtaposition of these spiny ugly things most of the year because it's hot or cold or whatever. And then in the spring, they just turn into this like beautiful plant. And so again, I wanted that on the back because I, I wanted to represent that beauty of the desert um, in this really, really violent, you know, violent context. Would you say it's accurate that the capacity for these meaningful choices is part of what makes this qualitative research method so powerful? Absolutely, I think so. I think it, um, because I, when I, I was thinking about that question, and I thought to myself, like, oh, well, it's similar. I'm always, like, trying, because it's a method, I'm trying to compare it to traditional notions of research. And, um, you know, I was thinking about, like, word choice, ways that writers choose particular words to express, um, you know, what it is they're trying to say or to compile their, their research, and how impactful and meaningful it is to use particular words over others. Um, and and it, I was thinking of that parallel. I was I was thinking of the um, the color choices I made, um, and so I do think that it, it it allows a bit more specificity and a bit more um, personalization than maybe a word might or a particular sentence construction. Um, however, at the same time, this was another conversation I was having with a friend recently. It also presents a difficulty because, um, it, so it presents an opportunity in, in meaningful, right, and making it meaningful. Um, but also, if I want to change a, a word in what I'm writing, I can just change the word, right, or change the sentence. Um, I was working on this seas quilt, and it came to me that, you know what, I want to use this certain purple for this part because it represented something to me, and I don't have purple quilt. So it was like, eight o'clock right before Joanne's closed and I had to like run to the store and get this purple that I needed because I was like I need purple and then my friend was joking with me and she was like this is what people who don't do this kind of work don't understand if I want to change a word I can change a word but if I don't have purple fabric 
or a particular type of um, thread, I have to figure out how to get that or make do with something else. So it also, it, it does make it meaningful, but it also presents challenges. I think your view of research processes is unique, but that doesn't mean that your work isn't connected to other scholars in your field. Let's talk about how your work connects to some of the other literature. Initially, let's talk about how you define feminism in your work. How do you think your definition of feminism is different from your peers? I think that it is, it's in line with Chandra Mohanty and, and her ideas about feminism, but I would say what, um, what demarcates it from, I think, most of my peers is that it's not uh, women-centered. So my idea of feminism um, considers larger structures, um, and I would say my idea of feminism also is, is not centered around women, but centered around um, advocating for those most marginalized. So to me, that's a, that makes a really big difference. And also, like I said, within these structures, so thinking about um, anti-capitalism and global, you know, global ideas of um, racism, sexism, um, all of the isms. And so for me, it's, it's much more complex than just uh, advocating for women or, you know, the, the model of, the additive model of just women having the same rights as men kind of idea of feminism. So I think it's, it's much more progressive in that way. As we're wrapping up our interview, uh, let's discuss some of the broader applications of your work. You brought up several examples of quilting in your paper, including the names quilt that memorialized AIDS victims. What other research projects can this qualitative research method inform? Are there any topics that you feel are closely connected to this? And I know you talked about you're doing another quilt also. Part of my argument in quilting as method is that this is a, a different method that, you know, uh, facilitates Di uh, different types of projects, right? Not necessarily that it works best for all projects, because I definitely don't believe that. Um, but I think for particular types, it does. And so it's really kind of working through and thinking through my own work with the Migrant Quilt Project, and back to your question about, you know, what gaps it fills, um, and really thinking about those numbers, how we will never have the numbers of migrant deaths, and we will never really know those stories either. Um, and so, I was trying to think about things in my life that I experience or that I come across that are similar. And so one thing I thought of, and I don't mean to go to, to dark places, but these are um, these can be really heavy topics. But there was a um, journal article I read, I want to say it was in psychology, sociology maybe, um, about a quilt project, but it was a digital quilt um, done for victims of it was for rape victims who did not name their sexual experience as rape, but by definition, it, w it was. It was non-consensual sex. And so 
um, it was a way for them to talk about their experience, to work through their experience was with this digital quilt. And I found that fascinating because I know a bit about that research and, and that is very much a thing that uh, many victims of rape don't name it as such or maybe not immediately or until later. Um, and so I, I was thinking about this, this idea of things that are hard to grasp, not only in numbers, but also through narrative. Um, because they're they're complicated, and I, I was thinking, okay, maybe maybe sexual violence might be something um, because also numbers are difficult with that because a lot of people don't report. And then I was also thinking about I have another friend who studies secondary trauma, um, and specifically secondary trauma in teachers. And so I find this also really fascinating because as teachers we do experience secondary trauma, um, but we often don't think of it as that or we don't name it that way and even more specifically she studies um she does other studies about black women and how they don't name what they experience as trauma they name it as other things but they don't name it as trauma and so i think culturally even within my family i think that is something that we also don't name as such right we don't name um traumatic experiences as such um, and so I think that presents another opportunity where thinking about trauma and traumatic events and secondary trauma, especially, how could we reflect some of the research in that that is difficult to capture in numbers and difficult to capture in narratives. Um, so those were the two, two ideas that, that came to mind. I think um, projects that exist in gray areas um, or that we don't have immediate um, numbers or stories, I think are the, the types of projects that would um, best or would, would benefit from this method. Well, thank you so much for sharing this with us. It was such an interesting article and, you know, thinking about quilts and immigration, I definitely learned a lot. So thank you so much for coming to talk to us about it. Thank you so much for your time. I think you're brilliant. I think it's very inspiring how you sort of paved your way, like proving that this is a qualitative method. Um, yeah, this conversation is very enlightening. So thank you. Of course. I'm so glad. Thank you so much. And again, your questions were just, just brilliant. So keep doing what y'all are doing. Special thanks for Sonia Arellano for taking her time to participate in the interview. Be sure to check out her article, Quilting as Method, for a deeper dive into our conversation and her work. I would also like to thank the people who made it possible to put this episode of The Parlor together. Ellen and Allie were our amazing interviewers, and behind the scenes, Amy wrote our script and Holly wrote the liner notes. This episode of The Parlor would also not have been possible without Professor Longacker, who provided all the tools and connections to produce this. Please note that any opinions expressed in the podcast belong to the speaker alone and not the Department of Rhetoric and Writing or the University of Texas at Austin.